My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and this is the Alpha Human Podcast. Our guest today is Jason Redman, who served 21 years as a Navy SEAL and a SEAL officer. Now, during a mission to capture an Al-Qaeda high-value target, Jason and his team came, came under heavy machine gun fire. And although he was mortally wounded, Having been shot twice in the arm and once in the face, he and his team emerged victorious and brought everyone home alive. Now, for his service, Jason was awarded the Bronze Star Medal with Valor, Purple Heart, the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, and two Combat Action Ribbons. Jason's road to recovering from the devastating injuries he sustained was an enormous challenge requiring dozens of reconstructive surgeries, but he overcame the enormous physical and psychological toll to his body and mind. And after retiring from the Navy, he went on to start Wounded Wear, a nonprofit organization which supported wounded combat veterans and their families. Jason then founded Soft Spoken, SOF, as in Special Operations Forces, a speaking company which focuses on leadership, teamwork, and overcoming adversity for businesses, first responders, sports teams, and government organizations. And in 2018, he launched the Overcome Academy, where he teaches wounded warriors who want to regain their mental edge and begin a new mission on how to actually leverage the leadership skills and the overcome mindset that helped him not only survive, but thrive. Now, along the way, Jason has authored two very powerful books. His first was entitled Trident, The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL Leader. Now, his most recent book, which we're going to cover in this podcast, is called Overcome, Crush Adversity, with the leadership techniques of America's toughest warriors. My God, Jason, welcome to the show. Lawrence, honored to be on. Thanks so much for uh, the great shout out. Uh, what's up to the alpha human uh, crowd that's out there, hungry for knowledge. Hung, man, they're hungry for, for knowledge. They're hungry to succeed. They're hungry to survive and thrive. They're hungry to, to just make their lives better, uh, better and to to really um, overcome whatever it is that they're facing in their lives, because we're all facing something. This is a tough time for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people are, of course, coming down with, with COVID. They're dealing with that, but there's ramifications well beyond that. People are losing their jobs. People are depressed. People are suicidal. People are, you know, they say that, uh, uh, you know, uh, idle hands are the devil's plaything, right? You're when you're locked down in the house. What do you do with yourself, especially if you have no job? People are drinking too much, taking too many drugs. So there's a lot of stuff going on out there, and people are thirsty for a story of redemption. They're 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 hungry 
to hear from individuals such as yourself who have been through, quite honestly, some of the, the, the toughest things that any human could go through and somehow not only managed to survive it all as you did, but to come out the other end happy, stronger, better, and, and as you say, thriving. So that's a story that all of us want to hear, and I can't wait to get into it. And I wanted to say, first and foremost, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your service. And thank you for being on the, on the show. I, it's my honor. I mean, the, uh, I came from a military family, so a life of service was you know, all I ever wanted to do from a young age. And it was an amazing career. I think a lot of times people are a little, you know, shocked. They'll, they'll say, you know, gosh, that's really terrible. What happened to you? And I, I don't see it that way. Um, it was definitely a rough road. It was hard, but adversity makes us better. A lot of people ask me, do you, you naturally have uh, an overcome mindset? And I will say that many people are born with a higher level, you know, overcome mindset, tenacity, any of those things. It's just your ability to deal with discomfort, pain, change, uh, all these different things. And I will say that some people, I was blessed to be able to deal, that, deal with that at a higher level than others, but anybody can learn it. Okay. And by going through these things, they've only made me better, more resilient and better able to deal with all the stresses. 2020, uh, as much as people don't want to hear it, it was an amazing year to flex <laughs> your overcome mindset and build those overcome muscles. Wow. Uh, absolutely. What, what, you know, what a great psychology to have. But, you know, you say it might be in, in your DNA, but I don't know. You know, we'll talk about it. I'll quote you from the book because you know, even you were doubting it at, at some point when you were in the hospital. And we'll, we'll bring that up because this is, you know, that's the vulnerable moment that you share that a lot of people can really learn from because it's in, you know, it's in those vulnerable moments where, you know, the, our true humanity can really be not only measured, but shared with other people. Because I'll tell you what, people look up to individuals, heroes such as yourself. Not just not just a not just in the military, not just a combat veteran, but Navy SEALs, and you know what that means to a lot of people. So they see you as you see, they see you guys as the athletes of the military, the you know the the top of the top. You guys are the tier one of the special operators. So to hear you, you know, uh, be so vulnerable and humble in the book, um, I think is gonna is gonna really translate well. So. Before we get into it, I want to I want to quote from the book. I want to quote you right now from the book, uh, and then uh, we'll we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit about what got you into the into the seals. So here we go. Okay. Um, and by the way, I read Overcome. That's that you know again. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, I'm looking forward now. Now I want to retry it, of course. Uh, but uh, I read Overcome, and it's a phenomenal book. Uh, so here's a quote from it. You say that for my entire life, I had beaten the odds. I made it into the SEALs, the most elite fighting force in the world, despite being a small, skinny high schooler with discipline problems and unimpressive grades. After almost being washed out of the Navy because of a leadership failure early in my career as an officer, I had fought my way back to being a respected leader and was ready to assume the first major level of SEAL command, a platoon commander. 
I was at the height of my career. But all of that was before I had run into the devastating ambush that had wounded me and two of my teammates and left my blood and pieces of my body on the battlefield in Iraq. Now, before we talk about what left you there on that battlefield, what, what you know, because that is an unbelievable story. Let's rewind just a, a moment because I wanted to give it some context. Let's rewind a moment and explore your journey to becoming a Navy SEAL because I mean, like you said, you, you're a skinny high schooler, discipline problems, unimpressive grades, Navy SEALs, you know, superheroes, best of the best. How, how did you kind of cross that bridge? What was the journey to getting there? What was that all about? What was your, what was your motivation and how'd you do it? Yeah, I mean, I am. Uh, I always joke that I think for the average person, I think they they envision Navy SEALs as these six foot five Arnold Schwarzenegger looking types. Um, you know, that's the Hollywood model. The she, the SEAL. I'm sure there's a lot of you out there who follow Jocko. Jocko's a friend, yep. and you know, if Hollywood could chisel. If they could cast a character that looks yeah. like a Navy SEAL, he would look like Jocko. You know, Jocko yeah, exactly. is 6'1", you know, 220, you know, just this jaw that could kill people just by looking at it, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm uh, 5'7", and uh, I'm about 170 now, but at uh, the majority of my career, I stayed, you know, between about 160 and 170. I was only 130 pounds when I went through SEAL wow. training. Wow. Wow. Um, so I am not what most people will think of when they think of seals. But the reality is most seals are actually uh, smaller. Most seals are 5'10 and 180. That's the average seal. You would, you would never know that. It's uh, Well, it has to do with a lot of the running and the, the, the heavy endurance. You've got to be really strong for your body weight, but you've got to be able to do it for long periods of time. And that's kind of what leads to it. But I tell everybody that the main reason being, um, oftentimes when I speak, oftentimes when I read, people are looking for this incredible story and that story is there. There's no doubt about it. It's an amazing combat story, you know, with all the things that you're looking for when you're interested in learning about special operations, combat, all these things, but bigger mm -hmm. than that, it, it is relatable because, um, because the only thing I would say that's unique is my ability to be tenacious, my ability to endure pain and discomfort. Um, and anybody can learn that. And that became that journey of mm -hmm. becoming a SEAL. Uh, I had come from a very patriotic family. My dad was in the army. So I grew up, uh, my dad jumped out of airplanes and I thought that was the coolest thing. Wow. And then my grandfather was a decorated World War II pilot and flew all his missions uh, seven air medals, distinguished flying cross, very decorated. And I was just fascinated with that whole lifestyle. I was just very uh, enamored as a young man with the warrior mindset and heard about my dad told me about the SEALs when I was about 14. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And wow. so many people were like, oh, you're not going to do that. You know, you're the proverbial 90 pound weakling, you know, you're never going to make it. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I challenge anyone out there, you know, the only thing stopping you typically from getting to where you want to be in your life is you. Um, you know, there are certain levels we may not have the ability to do. I'm never going to be an NFL lineman. Uh, that's okay. probably not going to happen. I mean, there's, I, I, you know, I could take every steroid on the planet and probably not get to the level where I could be an effective NFL lineman. But right. if it's within the realm of reality, you can get there if you believe in it and you start pushing forward. And I pushed the I believe button and said I was going to be a SEAL and started down this path. 
and started doing things to get myself out of my comfort zone. Um, you know, I, I, my dad always told me I was too small to play football, but I loved football. And I was like, you know, football players are tough. So 10th grade, I went out and started playing football and got the, I, I don't know. Can I curse a little bit on this? Yeah, podcast? yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Got the shit kicked out of me on a regular basis, man. Literally the snot knocked out of me on a regular basis. But every time I got back up and went back into it and I knew, you know, Hey man, if you can do this, you know, you're building this, you know, that's how an overcome mindset is built. It's getting knocked down and getting back up and getting knocked down and getting back up. So continue down this path was fortunate enough. Um, you know, very young age, I went through seal training. I joined the Navy at 17 while I was still in high school, uh, 18, um, started seal training, graduated at 19. Um, and, and here I was found myself on this incredible journey, you know, around the world, found myself going to Central and South America doing these counter drug missions and just this amazing, you know, mission, everything or missions, everything that I ever dreamed of as a young kid, uh, I was living it and found success, uh, and really continue to excel and thrive. Um, got selected for, to become an instructor, got mm -hmm. selected for, uh, a couple of other various programs. And then I got selected for a commissioning program and was sent off to old dominion university to earn my degree. Okay. And then come back as a seal officer. And, uh, this is where I think that, uh, oftentimes young leaders get off track and, and usually it's more young men. I don't see it quite as often in young women, but okay. young men, when we start to excel at a young age and we get more and more responsibility that's coupled with success, mm -hmm. oftentimes, you know, those two little partners that like to jump on board when this is happening called ego and arrogance, they started walking with me and I began to believe a little too highly in my own uh, hype. And uh, although I was continuing to excel, I, um, I ended up at that time, I went to Old Dominion University here in Norfolk, Virginia. And at that time, the consortium of o Old Dominion University, Norfolk State and Hampton University were three universities that had the ROTC. And we had about 330 cadets and midshipmen, which was the largest one on the East Coast at that time. And I ended up working my way up to become the battalion commanding officer. So I was the number one leader in charge of the battalion. I ended up graduating summa cum laude with honors from ODU. And wow. came back to the SEAL teams, got commissioned to come back to the SEAL teams thinking I was like patent reincarnated or something. <laughs> and, uh, and this is where, you know, pride, you know, pride before the fall. And uh, boy, did I fall. I came back and there were a lot of reasons for this. Um, in, uh, obviously, I started school right before 9-11 happened. Okay. 9-11 happened while I was at school. So as I'm going to school, the SEAL teams, which at prior to 9-11, we were pretty much a peacetime military. We, there weren't a whole lot of real world missions that were going on. Okay. And suddenly, incredibly rapidly in a very short period of time from 2001 to 2004, when I came back, almost 75% of the SEAL teams had combat experience. Not only did they have combat experience, we began to realize that the tactics that we had been learning on, that we had been training on, were all based off the last time, and this is how the military typically works. What is the last time we saw long-term sustained combat? In this case, it was Vietnam. 
So it was all those old Vietnam veterans who were training us. And these were the tactics we were utilizing. Well, the tactics from Vietnam did not work in Iraq and Afghanistan. So there was this total rewrite. So I came back as this young, arrogant leader who was thinking I knew everything. And I didn't know anything because everything that I had learned was now different. And instead of humbling myself and saying, wow, this is all different, man, I need to throttle back and I need to be talking to these young bucks and saying, hey, man, how do I do this? Instead, I made the mistake of a lot of leaders of um, keeping it all inside and just hanging on as tight as possible and starting to make mistakes. And, and, um, and then what did I do that a lot of people do? I started uh, uh, self-medicating, a little bit of alcohol here and there. And mm-hmm. all of this was continuing to erode my credibility. So uh, that, that is how I ended up, you know, and there's definitely more dy- you know, dynamics to this story. But the bottom line, all of that came to this perfect storm where I found myself in Afghanistan in 2005, made a bad call on a mission. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it probably would not have been as big a deal if I had just owned it and just said, you know what, you're right, that was a bad call because nobody was injured, nobody was killed. It was okay. dangerous, it, it put people at jeopardy, but we didn't have the negative impact that should have happened or that could have happened. But instead, I pushed back, I fought back, I said, no, I did the right thing. You guys are just throwing me under the, my, the bus. And uh, that finally kind of became a collision point because there were several uh, guys that I work with that finally were like, enough, this guy's arrogant. He's going to get people killed, get rid of him, kick him out. And, uh, and that was kind of the first time the punch to the face that, Hey, maybe you're not as great as you think you are. Um, but I wasn't quite there yet. There took a few more, it took about a five to six month period of being knocked down and just being humbled. Uh, one of those things that came out of that is I ended up going to U.S. Army Ranger School. There were some things that happened in Ranger School where for the first time in my life, I truly took a step back. And I really encourage all leaders to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's three views of our, ourselves or three views that occur within the world. There's the, the view of yourself that you have of yourself. And mine was grossly out of alignment. There was the view that other people have of you. And then there's the view where they meet in the middle. What's the reality of the two? So there's a perception view that people make. There's the reality. And then there's your view of yourself. And, and mine was the, the perception or the, the, the reality, your view should be closer to the reality. And if it's not, then there's big problems. Um, And, and this is where for the first time I took a step back and said, man, you're, dude, you, you want to do all these great things. You want to be this great leader, but you're not there. I mean, you're not leading yourself. And it started down this process um, on the three rules of leadership that now I speak on that um, so many people focus on leadership as our ability to lead others. And, uh, and we think it has so much to do with oftentimes this round thing in the bottom of our face and, uh, or, or perhaps, you know, a, a, a rank on our collar or a title on our door. Uh, We confuse all those things with our ability to lead others when the reality is your ability to lead others is, is predicated by rule number one, which is your ability to lead yourself. How well do you build structure and discipline into your own life? How well do you uh, uh, project positivity in the face of negativity? How well do you lead yourself? 
which led to the most fundamental leadership advice I was given because in ranger school, uh, the weight of all this really started to bear on me. And I really started to doubt myself and I was questioning who I was and if I had the ability to even do this. And I, 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 um, I quit for a very short period of time and was going to leave. I was going to leave the military. I convinced myself that um, I could never recover from the mistakes that I had made. Like I'd made too many mistakes. I was damaged goods. The guys wouldn't follow me again. Mm -hmm. And I had amazing leader, probably one of the best leaders uh, in the SEAL teams was a mentor of mine and the Ranger Colonel happened to know him and called him. And he got on the phone with me and I gave him this sob story of how, you know, hey, I've been thrown under the bus and, you know, and I made all these mistakes and nobody's ever going to follow me again. And oh, boo hoo. And uh, and he said to me, do you really believe that? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, Jay, you know, the reality is people will follow you if you give them a reason to. He said, so get back in that course crush it, come back to the SEAL teams and give the guys a reason to follow you. And I guarantee you with enough time, ultimately they will. And he, and he was right. Uh, and that's kind of this new journey that I went on that I started to walk and really okay. focus on, you know, rule number one, lead yourself. Rule number two, lead others through motivation, inspiration, giving them the resources and the guidance they need and then trust them to execute it. And then rule number three, lead always. You can't pick and choose when you want to lead, you know? Uh -huh. As a matter of fact, it's in the hardest times. If you look around you and everybody else is turning inward because the suck factor is so high that people are barely hanging on and grinding, mm -hmm. you may feel the same way as a leader. And guess what? That's a clue that you need to ramp up your leadership abilities to the highest level. That's the lead, out, that's the lead always equation. Gotcha. And, and I started to apply that in, uh, in my life and, and slowly over about a two year period, period, earn my way back and earn back the trust and credibility of the guys that I was, you know, allowed to lead. Amazing. Amazing. So, you know, already you have a, an incredible overcome story happening right there. And, you know, you're, as you said, or as, as I was quoting you, you talk about you're at the, at that point, then you had gotten back and you were, you're at the height of your career, right? You were, you were, you were, you were there. You had re regained your credibility, regained that integrity, level of respect, leading, leading always, you know, a different person, you know, back in the game in a major way. And you're, you're leading an assault force, right? While you're, while you're in Iraq. Correct. And you know, all, all kinds of mayhem ensues. And this is where you suffered th these, what easily could have been um, fatal injuries. Yeah. So can, can you talk about, tell us that story? Yeah, because yeah. This is where, you know, overcoming what you had to overcome to get back on track with your career was, was hard enough. That's nothing compared to what happens next. If you could tell that story. Yes and no. And we're going to come back to that point because that's okay. a really critical point because a lot okay. of people think that my injuries were the hardest thing I've been through. And I'm going to, I'm okay. going to come back to that. Um, and, and yeah, I literally had earned my way back to the top. And that is an incredibly hard thing to do in the SEAL teams. As a matter of fact, uh, my commanding officer, when I retired, said I am one of the very few people he's ever seen screw up to the level I did and earn back that level of respect. A lot of guys leave just because it's too hard a road to walk. 
Um, Amazing. But yeah, literally. And we were one, we, we had seen very heavy combat. It was a very successful combat deployment. We really had taken the fight to the enemy. We had, we had gotten rid of some really evil people and we had captured um, hundreds more and got them off the battlefield. So probably everything, you know, if, as a SEAL, everything you ever dream of, it was the, you know, the, the, the deployment of your career is really what it was. And, and where in Iraq was, where, where in Iraq was this? So we were in Fallujah. We were operating out of Fallujah, Fallujah Iraq okay. and all throughout the Al Anbar province. So very, uh, okay. very dangerous location. Infamous. Especially. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so here I am, everything's good. And we're literally one week from sending our first wave of guys home. We're wrapping things up. And uh, the number one leader for Al-Qaeda in the uh, Al-Anbar province, which Fallujah, Al-Anbar is the Western province of Iraq. It's where Fallujah, Ramadi, and some of your really dangerous locations in Iraq were located. And uh, the number one leader was someone we'd been hunting all deployment. We had gotten into some scraps with his teams. He had been responsible for killing a fellow SEAL in uh, April of 2007, Petty Officer Clark Schwedler. And, uh, and we really wanted this guy. We got word that he was going to be in a specific time and location. And, and I won't get into all the details, but the, the bottom line is we walked into going into that target. We walked into a very well executed ambush. Uh, he had a very well-trained security detail of about 15 individuals and they had pre-staged an ambush line outside the house of where we were going. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we walked right into it. Uh, so, uh, we got split and there was about six members of my team that were now in this ambush line with myself included. And my medic took around in the leg and was initially taken down. One of our other guys ran forward to grab him. He was stitched up the body three times. He was a great big guy, strong guy, and still managed to grab our medic and himself despite being shot and get back to the only point of cover we had, which was a tractor tire, uh, like a big John Deere tractor tire back behind us. Uh, and then nothing but thousands of yards of empty Iraqi desert. Um, I started laying down fire. I was shooting and it was, and uh, that's when I initially got shot. I took um, uh, a machine gun round to the left elbow. Uh, it ended up being two and in the, in the firefight, I didn't realize it was one. It was actually two rounds and I thought it shot my arm off. Um, I took rounds across the body armor. I took rounds off my helmet. I uh, had my left night vision tube, sh uh, tube shot off. Uh, I was taking rounds off my gun. And, um, and then I turned to try and move back to that tractor tire when I caught around in the face. It hit me right in front of the ear. It traveled through my face, exited the right side of my nose, blew out my right cheekbone, um, wow. uh, traveled directly under my eye, vaporized my orbital floor. It broke all the bones above my eye. I dropped into this newfound hole. It broke the head of my jaw and it shattered my jaw down to my chin. And then it knocked me out. So, uh, uh, sure. vicious firefight that I'm now unconscious, literally laying on the ground, uh, with this firefight that's occurring between the enemy and, and my guys, um, and I'm literally bullets are traveling about eight to 12 inches above me. Um, needless to say, the guys did an amazing job. My team leader stepped up and took over and just did an incredible job of managing the fight. Uh, at one point he ran forward and got me, got me back, got a tourniquet on me. 
Um, he, uh, we ended up calling in a fire mission. For those that might not understand that term in the military, this is when we bring in uh, munitions, bombs, bullets, rockets from an aircraft up overhead. And there's mm -hmm. an aircraft, an amazing aircraft, an amazing feat of American engineering technology called the AC-130 gunship. And that Air Force aircraft has probably sa saved more lives on the battlefield, uh, infantry and special operations lives. And we ended up calling in a uh, uh, fire mission directly on our position. Um, it was so close that initially the first two times they said, no, we will kill you. Like literally we will just kill you. I mean, there'll be nothing left of you guys. And uh, my team leader did an amazing job of coordinating it. They finally brought it in on the third iteration, the third request. And uh, it allowed us um, to survive and get out of there. And uh, that obviously started a, uh, a whole new journey for me. Um, you know, about 96 hours later, I found myself in a hospital bed in Bethesda, Maryland. Well, hold on, hold on. I'm just going to stop you there for a second. Okay. Because, because there's something there's okay. So let's set this up because uh, first of all, you know, when they dropped what they, the ordinance, they dropped, um, when they unloaded, you were like, you, what were you like 50 yards away? I was 45 feet from the machine gun that had me pinned down. Yeah. So you, you're right there. Um, so it, it, we, I was close enough that when the rounds came in, I mean, my team leader yelled out incoming and, uh, and you can actually, I could hear the aircraft fire. There's a delay. Uh, and I could hear the aircraft fire and then waiting and then it hit the ground in front of us and exploded, you know, up over us, the dirt and debris. Uh, and miraculously, none of us were hit. Miraculous. So as you lay on the ground bleeding out, because you were bleeding out, yeah. um, you were you were in the center of the ambush uh, and your, your team was just unable to pull you from the crossfire. Right. Because, they, you know, otherwise they're going to lose their lives. And, you know, the, the key is they've, they've got to survive so that it can eventually if, they, if we win, they can pull you out of there. Yeah. So I'm going to quote you. You say while you're laying there bleeding out, you said that. I knew I had limited time. Every pump of my heart pushed more and more blood out of my body and sent me one additional step closer to the end. As I struggled to focus and think through the fierce gunfire, I called out to God, Lord, give me strength. As I struggled to focus and think through the gunfire, that prayer um, Lord, give me strength. A, a thought kind of, you know, popped into your head. And you said you had watched a documentary by John Alpert and Matthew O'Neill called Baghdad ER. Yeah. And you, you said that you remembered a line from it. This is going through your mind while you're laying there kind of bleeding out. And it said, our military trauma doctors are so good that if you can show up at the combat support hospital with a pulse, you have a 90% chance of surviving. Yeah. Right. So then you say that you wrapped your head around one singular thought. What was that thought? Stay awake to stay alive. And uh, it, it is, you know, and oftentimes, um, Oftentimes I tell people and 2020 is a perfect example of this. 
So often when we have life ambushes, no different than real world enemy ambushes, there's so many things you cannot control. Yet as human beings, we tend to focus on the negative, on the things that we have zero control over. And we waste all this time and energy fretting and, and locked down and, and focused on these things we have no control over. I could not control the enemy shooting at me. I could not control that I was pinned down. I knew I was combat ineffective. I knew I, you know, I was too weak to shoot. I knew that if I sat up, I was going to get shot. I knew that my guys couldn't come get me. I knew that they had to win the fight before they could get me. We had learned all this in training. So I, you know, in that moment, when I called out, I knew what could I control? The only thing I can control was me. Uh, the only thing I can control was, was my will to live. And, uh, and, and thankfully God planted that thought in my head and gave me the strength, you know, stay awake to stay alive. Everything in me wanted to go to sleep. Okay. It is the greatest fatigue I've ever felt in my life. Um, every breath, um, was a struggle. I was just, I felt like I had a 10,000 pound weight on my chest and every single breath took this massive amount of effort. And I, I was unable to move. I remember at one point trying to feel my right hand, which wasn't damaged. And I, I couldn't feel my right hand. And, you know, that thought of, man, you're going to die. So and I was like, okay, well, if you go to sleep, if you let go, you will die. So stay awake to stay alive. It is your job to show up at that hospital with a pulse. And that became, I, I call this singularity of focus. Okay. Um, if you can, if you can blur out all the chaos that's going on around you in, in life ambushes, in bad moments, and you figure out what is the one thing I have the ability to control that's going to make the difference. Um, that's how you will survive. That's how you will move forward. Um, I have another example of this that occurred on a jump that I did when I was in school. I actually came back and we had to maintain our qualifications for jumping and diving. Mm -hmm. And I went back to do this night jump with a platoon. It was me and a couple of other SEALs that happened to be in school together. And we did this water night jump in the Chesapeake Bay and the winds had picked up. And I'll be honest, they were right at the threshold of jump of, we call it go, no go criteria. If the winds are too high, then you're in danger of guys drowning because they can get dragged and all this. I'll be honest, we were right at the threshold, but I was the last guy out of the plane. The, the guys out of the plane, it goes from heaviest to lightest. And I was always the lightest guy. So I was the last one out of the plane. And I have a feeling that by the time I jumped, the winds had picked up again. And, uh, and when I hit the water, I had made a mistake. I had made a mistake in the air. You're supposed to release your chest strap for a water jump so that by the time you hit the water, you just clear your harness. That way the harness and the parachute pull away uh, and you don't get dragged. Okay. And I hadn't jumped in a while. I'd been in school and I'd missed this step. And when I hit that water, the wind caught my parachute and planed me across the water. And it literally dragged me under the water like a sea anchor. Oh my God. And I was drowning and, and all these thoughts were going through my head and I was like, I'm drowning and I'm trying to sit up, but I couldn't sit up because there's chest straps holding me into the harness. You have a, we call it a quick release up by your collar. They call it a Cape well. Okay. And, and all these thoughts were racing through my mind. I'm focused on all these things I couldn't control. And finally I told myself to stop. What can you control? Cape well, pop this cape well that will release one side of the parachute so it'll deploy. Singularity of focus is what that became. That became my sole focus. I ignored everything else happening and it was to pop that cape well. You know, follow your harness, get up, pull it, 
And, uh, and it saved my life because I would have drowned. I was right at the threshold of passing out. Um, so same thing in that firefight, stay awake to stay alive. Um, and, and it enabled me to get to the um, combat support hospital with a pulse. And they, they, they told me, they were like, you know, it's a miracle you survived. I mean, with the blood loss that you had, um, you know, it's, it's, you're lucky. And I credit that to the big man above. And I credit it to not giving up, just focusing on, you know, not allowing myself to, to fall asleep, not allowing myself to give into that darkness. Stay awake, stay alive. Um, so, so when you were recovering in Bethesda Naval Hospital, so you're, you, you wake up, you're in, you're in the hospital now and, uh, <laughs> you ask a doc. So you ask the doctor, uh, quote, how many months will it take to put me back together? Actually, you didn't ask it. You wrote it on a, on a pad. Cause you couldn't, you know, half your face was gone. You couldn't talk. So you write how, you know, how long is it going to take? Um, so that I can get back to fight. That's what you, that's what you wrote. How long is it going to take so that I can get back to fight, uh, with my teammates. And you say that her face registered, complete disbelief yeah she she she, she, she what did she say to you man she was she, like she shook her head and was like she read it a couple of times and was like months lieutenant we're talking years to put you back together and uh i think that was kind of the first time that the real gravity of what had happened really started to set in because i'll be honest i think at first there was a little bit of euphoria uh, one, I've never done drugs. And now suddenly I'm on about the most potent <laughs> meds on the planet. So right. I'm riding this super high and I'm alive. I mean, I'm just like, wow, I did it. I'm, I'm still alive. Um, it, but reality as this was moving forward was setting in more and more. And I think when she told me that, that it was going to take years, that really set in. And then as more and more doctors were inundating me with information, Mm -hmm. Um, I had no use of my left hand. Um, the nerve damage was fairly extensive. Uh, in the very beginning, doctors were talking about amputating my arm. Um, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm traked, I'm wired shut. They're feeding me through a stomach tube. I'm too weak to even walk from all the blood loss. And, you know, I'm starting to feel like as this is occurring that I'm, right back in the ambush, except instead of the bullets and bombs of the battlefield, now it's the bullets and bombs of life. I'm just being hit over and over with these negative, you know, hey, this is what's happening and this is what's happening. And this is this uphill battle we have to climb. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified to look at myself. I wouldn't, I did not look at myself in a mirror for almost two weeks after I got back. I was really terrified of what I looked like. You know, I've had these images that I'm going to be disfigured. My, you know, I'm just going to be this, you know, freak. Um, and about that time, as I'm struggling with all this, um, I had some individuals that came into the room and they were having a conversation off to themselves. I drifted off a little. But that subconscious state where you still can kind of hear what's going on. And they started mm -hmm. to have this conversation about what a shame, what a pity. We send these young men and women off to war and, you know, they're, they come home and they're broken and battered. They're never going to be the same. You know, they're never going to be able to get back out in society and be successful. 
and they left. And I remember thinking to myself, man, is that really me? Like, is that my future? You know, am I like, am I going to be like the Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump? You know, this bitter, bitter, angry veteran uh, who just, you know, can't fit back into society. And, uh, and I realized I was kind of at a a pivotal point. Um, Something big that I talk about in the book Overcome is this idea. I survived an enemy ambush. Um, And the mechanics of an ambush are the same, uh, whether it's a life ambush or an actual enemy ambush. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that I began to find as I, as a, I was, in another ambush in that hospital, as things continue to get worse and worse for my prognosis and outcome and the recovery. And I started to realize much later, as I look back on this, that everybody gets ambushed in life. And when we get ambushed, whether it is a combat ambush with actual bullets and bombs and enemy forces, or whether it's a life ambush, the point of the attack, the point of the incident, the point of the ambush, the point of the crisis, the point of the massive adversity, we call that the X. And I had learned in my SEAL career that in order to survive any ambush, you have to get off the X as quickly as possible. The longer you sit on the X, the harder it is to overcome. It's like quicksand. The more it pulls you down and the harder it is to get up and get momentum. Yet so many people sit on the X for way too long. And I kind of realized that in that moment, I realized I was on the X. And I also realized that the other thing that happens when you're in an ambush, when you're, you know, just hit over the head with negativity and, and, and a crisis, greatest gift you have is you have a choice. You have a choice in how you're going to deal with adversity. And I don't care what happens to you. You have a choice. You have free will. Nobody puts a gun to your head and says, you know, you've got to be negative. You've got to lay there. You can't get up. Um, you know, you can, I don't care where you are. If you're in prison, if you're getting ready to be electrocuted, you can project positivity. You can choose positivity over negativity. And it was in that moment that I was like, that ain't going to be me. I am going to drive forward. I refuse to let people have pity for me. And I'm Mm -hmm. just going to be, you know, it goes back to those lessons, lead yourself, lead others, lead always. And I told my wife, she came back in the room and I said, never again, never again is somebody going to come in here and feel sorry for me because I refuse to feel sorry for myself. I choose positivity. And I wrote out this sign and it said, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming in this room with sadness or sorrow, don't bother. The wounds that I received, I got in a job that I love, doing it for people that I love, defending the freedom of a country that I deeply love. I will make a full recovery. What is full? That's the absolute utmost physically. I have the ability to recover. And then I'm going to push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you're not prepared for that, go elsewhere. And and we signed (laughs) it to management because I don't know. (laughs) I thought it was funny. (laughs) So So, uh, that's, yeah, I mean, wow, that's, so you you know you you make that bold statement you put it you put it up on the door and you know really um it, it was it was your way of i mean you couldn't talk you couldn't you know you couldn't express yourself and it was your way of letting the world know that hey yeah i'm not that guy uh you know i'm not i'm not i i'm not this image you have 
I'm something, I'm a completely different animal and you, I won't be taking that. I won't be taken down. I'm going to overcome this. I'm going to get off the X, but unbeknownst, unbeknownst to you, you know, the day you, you wrote that and hung that sign up on your hospital door, there was a, a legendary New York fire captain and Marine named John Vigiano. That was, that was also in the hospital. He was visiting someone, I think. Yep. This guy lost both sons on 9-11. Yep. One, uh, and, one a firefighter and one a police officer. Exactly. And, and, this, and when he saw your sign, he took a picture of it and he posted it on social media. And then just it went viral. And I, I, I remember, I remember seeing that sign. I remember, I remember seeing that. And honestly, only after I read the book, I was like, oh my God, that's, that's Jason, Jason Redman. That's the, that's, uh, and you know, that really struck a chord with a lot of people, that sign. And it, it went viral and some amazing things started to happen in your life after that. Oh, right. Time, so, what, so now all of a sudden, so what's the trajectory after that? What happens after, after that thing goes viral, you get a lot of momentum. You know, where, where, where do you go? What does it take? You know, where does your life go from there? Well, interesting that when the sign occurred, um, I, my name was still not out in the press. The sign went viral, but John, and, and I got to say, so just, so John were John and Joe Vigiano, John Jr. Or Joe Vigiano. If you ever get okay. to 9-11, pay them some respects. And, and John Vigiano himself, my friend, he passed away in 2018. Rest so much respect. He was an amazing just icon of American patriotism, a legend in the fire department. So he became a really good friend over the years after my injuries. Um, but my name was not out there. And my plan was, I still had it in my mind. I was going to go back operational. And that whole story is captured in the Trident. The Trident follows the leadership failure. It follows the firefight and mm -hmm. it follows my recovery with this desire to try and get back operational. And unfortunately, it, uh, it just couldn't happen. My arm was damaged too much to get to the point where I could go back and operate again. Um, but the sign obviously was still out there. And then finally, at one point, my name got leaked and, you know, it started happening where I was asked to go and um, speak. And obviously, I got invited to the White House to meet President Bush because of the sign. Yep. Um, more and more people talked about it and wrote about it. Um, ultimately, Secretary Robert Gates wrote about it in his book. Um, Later, First Lady Michelle, let, let me back up because okay. a lot of people know the sign now because I didn't keep it. Um, I didn't feel like it was mine to keep. I felt like that sign belonged in the wounded ward at Walter Reed, at, at Bethesda, which later was renamed as Walter Reed after I left. Mm -hmm. So when President Bush signed it, we had it framed and it now hangs in the wounded ward at Walter Reed and wounded Amazing. warriors reach out to me on a regular basis. And so many VIPs have now seen the sign, including Michelle Obama, who had moved her so much. She wrote about it not once, but twice in her book. Uh, she talks about the impact of that sign on her. Um, so that I tell people, and it all goes back to that choice. I tell people that I could have easily laid in that bed and felt sorry for myself and nobody would have faulted me for that. 
nobody would nobody would have said you know well most likely you know most people will allow people to sit on the x for way too long yeah. and and they we, would have expected it yeah we make excuses for people especially if they make excuses for themselves after a traumatic event but what i talk about in the book overcome and it's true the faster you get off the x the better it's going to be and granted there's going to be a period of time i mean if you lose a child there's going to be a period of time that you have to grieve and go through this process, but it should be in your mind from the moment it starts. I'm going to go through this grieving process, but I'm going to get off the X as quickly as possible. And I'm going to do that to honor my child, or I'm going to do that to honor uh, whatever happened. I'm going to use it as momentum to, to make something better out of this negative thing that happened. And that's the power of choice. That sign and choosing positivity has now impacted millions of people, millions and millions of people across the United States, and it continues to do so to this day. And, and it's, it's, like, it's like throwing a great big rock into a still lake. You know, man, it goes in and then these ripples go out in all directions and just impact the shores in all directions. And that is the power of choosing positivity over negativity. So I just want to encourage you guys that are out there, if you are going through a hard time, 2020 has been a super hard year, uh, but choose positivity, even if you don't feel like it, even if it takes everything in your power, because it builds momentum and, and, and it, you're building your overcome mindset muscles, you're building the mindset of getting off that X and it'll get easier and easier as bad things happen. Um, interesting fact, uh, mm -hmm. So you, we were talking about the fact that most people think that my injuries were the worst thing that ever happened to me. Right. It wasn't. I was prepared for that ambush because the worst and hardest thing I had ever been through was my leadership failure. To be ostracized by my own teammates was the worst journey I've ever been on. You know, the, the, to, to, to be told in the, this community that I had busted my ass my whole life to be a part of and to earn a space to suddenly be told we find you lacking and we think we should take that trident that you earned because we don't think you no longer measure up I, I was suicidal I tell the story in the trident I put a gun in my mouth and almost killed myself in Afghanistan after all this happened and thankfully once again God stepped in and said what are you doing you know and, and I happened to be sitting straight across the desk at my, a picture of my wife and kids as I, you know, had this gun in my mouth and I saw them and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what message does it send to your kids? Like, you know, get, get up. And, uh, and I went and sought help. I went and saw the chaplain, mm -hmm. but that road prepared me for these injuries. Um, even though it was hard, it was relentlessly hard. It was an incredibly hard journey, 40 surgeries over four years um, obviously my military special operations career came to an end, mm -hmm. but it prepared me. And that's why I tell people, man, when you're going through hard times, 2020, man, 2020 is the year that you're flexing those <laughs> mental <laughs> muscles, man. You're flexing your overcome mindset. And if you embrace it, it's, it's, it sucks. It does suck when we're going through hard times, but it is making you better prepared for future hard times. Well, okay. So, I, I can completely see now that you put it in perspective, I can completely see how going through that leadership challenge with what was your identity? I mean, your identity is being a Navy SEAL and it's everything you would work toward and what you had gained in, in credibility. I could, I could just imagine when you have your identity ripped away from you and having to fight for it back, you know, it, you know, it could very well be 
the, the most um, the most difficult thing anyone could ever have to overcome. So I completely, completely respect that. And um, amazing. And again, amazingly, you overcame that as well. And now, as you tell these stories, you can see where all these seeds have been dropped throughout your life. And it's a, you know, it, it's part serendipity, part, you know, God um, coming, you know, just sending you a message at the right time in the right place part, you know, what you've been through, just everything seems to have, have lined up so that you could be spreading this message now. And you say, Jason, you say that, and this I find really interesting because I never thought about it this way. You say that the average human being will adore at least five major life ambushes over their lifetime. But the insidious thing is that a lot of people don't even realize that they've been ambushed. And, and so how it, you know, it's almost like, how do you get off the X when you don't even realize you're on it? it, it so we, uh, or I developed a uh, methodology called the react methodology to mm -hmm. understand and, and it's human nature. I mean, we, as humans, nobody wants to, nobody wants to be in an ambush. They suck. And, and if you're coming into an ambush and it's starting to occur, like, you don't want to admit like, oh my God, I'm in an ambush because you know, it's going to suck. You know, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. So I don't know what it is in human nature. There's a natural tendency for us to deny or right. procrastinate a crisis. Um, and I'll be honest, leaders sometimes are some of the worst because they don't want to admit that this crisis is developing because there may be an, a level of ownership where they, they might've not done something or should have done something that placed them into that. Uh, and now they're having to admit to the team and even to themselves that we're in this crisis. Um, so many people do it. So we developed a React methodology to give people a tool to, to get off the X. And the great news is it works in all kinds of different ambushes. And I break ambushes down into three categories. Okay. The, 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 the first category, I call them micro ambushes. And these are the ambushes of the mind. These are the ones that people have all the time. I mean, every day or weekly, depending on your personality. But it's mm -hmm. that little voice that says, you can't do this. You know, you're a failure. You're too weak. You're too small. You're a terrible business leader. You're a terrible mom, dad. You know, you're the wrong race, creed, color, sex. You know, you're too gay. You're too straight. I don't care what it is. Mm -hmm. These are the lies that we tell ourselves. Right. And, uh, and man, people get on the X in their mind, those micro ambushes, and they get stuck and they never get off of it. They never push forward to find success because they buy into those lies. The second type is a, I, I call it a, uh, a mini ambush. And I define a mini ambush as something that is, I call it a schedule disruption. So believe it okay. or not, I don't consider 2020 uh, a life ambush in my book. I've been through three already. 2020 is not a life ambush for me. It, it, it's not a major. It's a schedule disruption for me. That's all gotcha. it is. And so many people though have a major schedule disruption and they allow it to just totally impact their life in a negative way. And they just fall apart. They get on the X and because they thought they were going to go someplace or get someplace or do something. And then the schedule disruption comes along and they're not able to do it in the timeline they said. It might add weeks, months. It could even add a couple of years to their timeline. Mm. But they lose their fire to move forward because they got hit by this mini ambush, this schedule disruption. 
And then the last one is the major. These are the ones that are devastating. Uh, okay. I, I define a major life ambush as something that will forever leave physical, mental, emotional, or financial scars on you that that'll never, you'll always carry those scars with you for the rest of your life. And those are the ones that we talk about that you'll probably encounter five majors in your lifetime. They can be at the lower level, uh, the unexpected ending of a relationship, a divorce. They can be personal or professional failure. They could be lawsuit, bankruptcy. It could be illness or injury to you or someone you love. It could be sexual trauma. It could be, um, you know, an accident or it could be, you know, it could be the uh, loss of a loved one or the biggest one I've seen is the unexpected loss of a child. Those are major life ambushes. Yeah. And, uh, and when they come, you know, sometimes we see them coming and sometimes we don't. Most often we do. That's a whole nother subject. But this is where now we find ourselves in a life ambush, whether it's a micro, a mini or one of the majors, the react methodology works. Okay. So, so the first one is exactly what you talked about. So many people don't always recognize that they're in a life ambush. And that is the first letter of react. It is recognized. You have to recognize you're in a crisis. And okay. the faster you can do this, stop procrastinating, stop being in denial, stop self-medicating the pain away. You need to turn and embrace it head on. And okay. you need to recognize there is a problem. Uh, Houston, we got a problem. And uh, the faster you can do this, the faster you start this process of getting off the X. Once you recognize there's a crisis, now you're starting to move into problem solving mode, which moves us to step two, E. E stands for evaluate your assets. Um, evaluate your resources. You know, what do you have in your inventory? I also like talk about it, like tools in your toolbox. Okay. So if you look at it from the, uh, from the, um, my firefight example that night, I, as everything was going down, I remember laying there and remember we talk about control, which you can, well, training had, had trained me to where it was just muscle memory to, to check through these different things. So I remember we're all shot up. I'm like, man, I'm just a really bad situation. What do we have to bring to bear to this situation? I knew I had, uh, I had our other team about 150 yards away in another house. I knew we had, um, I knew we had a, a Marine Corps quick reaction force a couple of kilometers away. I knew I had drones overhead. I knew I had some Navy helicopters on standby. I knew I had, um, I had the AC-130 up overhead. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had an Army Special Operations medevac helicopter on standby. These were all the assets that I had in our inventory for us to deal with the problem. Well, life is no different. If it's a business ambush, you know, your thoughts should be, okay, what do we need to deal with this problem? You know, if it's a pending lawsuit, you know, of course, we want our attorneys. Maybe we need money. Maybe we need cash flow. Uh, you know, we definitely need to get together our trusted team of our advisors, maybe our board, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. These are the assets, the tools you have. Um, number three is a, you've got to assess possible options and outcomes. And I will tell you that there's a natural tendency when we recognize we're in a crisis, mm -hmm. uh, there's usually the biggest delay. The slowest period of time is recognizing that there's a crisis. That's the longest period for most people. Okay. You have to build a mindset of getting off the X as quickly as possible to reduce this timeline. And that's a lot of what I talk about in the book, Overcome. Yes. Um, once you get to that second step where you evaluate your assets and your resources, your inventory, your tools, there tends to become this sense of urgency that starts to develop. 
because when you know you have tools that you can bring to the problem, you have, you know, assets it, that builds hope. And it's suddenly like you went from this overwhelming, stress numbing, anxiety field crisis to, oh my God, I got these tools I can use to bring to bear to the problem. Right. And suddenly there gets this sense of urgency and it's like, let's go. This is actually, a, uh, we, in the military, we call this, uh, we, need to, we need to take a pause and we need to let the battlefield develop. This is where we at least need to look around and see, okay, what do we really have? Because sometimes when a crisis develops, you may not see all the problems immediately. Sometimes we get tunnel vision. We're focused on the immediate pain we're dealing with. And, and if we take a step back and we get all our team members to look, we start to recognize, oh, wow, hey, guess what? There are shooters over there. And guess what? You know, 500 yards away, there's a sniper shooting at us. We didn't even see that. Because if we move so quickly, if we choose our most immediate option, the outcome may, we, we may all get killed because we may move from actually a position we have a little bit of cover. We're getting mm -hmm. shot from these guys. But we may move into a more exposed, exposed cover where we're getting shot by a whole bunch of others. And life is no different. So I tell people to take that pause, you know, when you're assessing possible options and outcomes and you need to play through them in your mind with, you know, whether it's your, your spouse, whether it's uh, your team. And you talk about if we were to take option A, let's play this out. What would the outcome look like? Where will we be once we go through this process? Option B, option C. And oftentimes it's natural human behavior. We want to get out of this uncomfortable situation as quickly as possible because it's painful. Mm. It sucks. And oftentimes people choose the easiest route first because it's the fastest, it's the easiest, but so often it doesn't set us up for longer success. Right. And many times we choose that easy path and we actually go from one X to the next, and then we have to start the process again. So I really encourage people to think through this and look at that long-term outcome and sometimes accept that you're going to have to deal with the short-term pain before you get to that long-term gain, but it's absolutely worth it. You will set yourself up for better success. Number four is C. C stands for communicate. There is a tendency, um, especially as leaders, as we're going through this whole process, you know, we recognize, we evaluate, we look at the options and outcomes to keep it all within our own head. We're, we're rattling these things around in our head and we're like option A, and I know the team thought option B was better, but I don't know, maybe option A is the way to go. I don't know, what about option C? And then there was that option D and we just let this rattle around in our head. And until we get it out of our head, it's nothing but an idea. And this is where it's critical that you release it and just pick the best one that you think you have. You're never gonna get to 100% solution in a crisis. Colin Powell used to talk about by the time you got, you know, if you could get, you know, 50%, 60%, uh -huh. even up to 70%, that's the best you're ever going to get in a crisis. You need to make a decision and go. So gotcha. choose, choose, C stands for choose and communicate. And, and this now does two things. Number one, once you release it from your mind and you say, this is what I'm going to do, it's just human nature. If we say it, if we voice it, mm -hmm. we tend to follow through on it. Not only that, you've said it to other people. So there's a level of accountability. And the last component of choose and communicate, the, the, any X in a life ambush, it, it, it has its own gravitational pull. Other people get pulled onto the X with you when you're in a life ambush. If it's a okay. business ambush, your, your employees, your staff, your team members, believe it or not, your, your clients get pulled on the X with you, depending on how close they are with you. 
Right. If it's a family ambush, your, your, your spouse, your kids, your close friends, they get pulled on the X with you. And when you're on the X, everybody's, they're in the crisis too, man. They're overwhelmed. They're stressed. And they're looking for someone. Usually it's the person in the center of the X to go, what are we doing? So if you choose and communicate, now it enables this incredibly powerful thing called hope. It enables hope when someone says, hey, this is what we're going to do. Follow me. It gives people hope. And it starts this surge of momentum. And momentum is critical to get off the X, whether it's yours. And if you have people with you, they're going to help you move off that X. Um, and then the last one, take that momentum. T stands for take action. Mm -hmm. You've got to execute. So many people get to this last step. They've gone through this entire process and now they're waiting for the perfect moment. They're like, oh, let's wait till those are lull and fire. Or, you know, maybe it's a business ambush and they're like, you know what? Gosh, we really need some money to hire this or deal with this or deal with that. So we need to close one more deal because we're, you know, we're low on cash flow. We're tapped out, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know, and they wait. The longer you sit on that X, the harder it is to get up. So you've gone through this plan, take action. The time to move is now. Take action, execute, get off that X and move. And if you move on to another X, then guess what? Do the React methodology again, but use that momentum to move until you finally are out of the crisis and you're moving forward. So the React methodology works, whether it's a micro ambush, a mini, or of course a major. Recognize once again, depending on what it is, the timeline may be longer. If you lose a child, I would never expect anybody. If I lost one of my kids, even with everything that I know, it's going to take me a little bit of time, but I already have it in my mind. Believe it or not, some people may think I'm um, morbid, but I think about all the crises that I could potentially be in. What if I did lose a child? I mean, I have three amazing kids, but you know, they drive, they're out doing things. What happens if they were killed in a car wreck? I mean, that's a horrible thought to think of, but it is reality. And I am, uh, one of the great things the SEAL teams taught me was, you know, plan for um, the best or hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Okay. And, and I would never want to plan for something like that to happen to my children. But at least in my mind, I know if this happens, I'm going to have to deal with it. I'm going to have to grieve and go through that process. But no matter what, I know that I've got to drive forward and get off that X. I cannot wither away and die. My kids wouldn't want that. And no, no, nor does anyone else, you know, when you get involved in a life ambush like that. And people are going to rely on you. And in a tragedy, people are going to rely on you. And if you can't, if you can't muster that mindset, then you're not going to be of use to anybody, uh, let alone yourself. So, I mean, it, it takes incredible. Um, it, well, it, 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 of course, it takes a process, which you've just laid out. Uh, and it, it takes, as you call it, the overcome mindset. Hopefully you have it going into a crisis, but if you don't, the good news is, as you've described, you know, you can develop it. You can develop it while you're on the X. And you, you also talked about something which I found very interesting because you did say that, especially with a lot of, um, a lot of uh, veterans that, you know, coming, coming out of combat, you know, I hear it all the time. Everyone I speak to, um, whether you're, whether you're in the special operations community or not, if, you know, if you've been in combat, you know, you're coming out with, with, with issues, you know, you're coming out with, you know, PTS, you know, are you coming out with uh, TBI, 
you, you know, it's, you're coming out with, you know, some dependency issues. I mean, there's so, this is reality. Um, and what you said was that a lot of people are ashamed of what got them on the X. And so they don't, you know, maybe, and maybe this goes back to your recognized point, but what you said was, a, a, what you find is people are able to get off the X by telling their story. Yes. Right. Telling their story. And so one of the things I think you recommend, um, especially for veterans um, in your Overcome Academy, is that you get them to, is it that you get them to tell their story? Is that something you do? Because you, the, the thing is, that's what you've been doing for how many years now? You're out there. You're telling your story. Um but people won't, people don't open up. They, they, they don't want to tell their story. No, they don't. Cause we don't want to relive failure. We don't want to relive tragedy. We don't want to relive trauma, but the problem is, and, uh, and I talk about this in the book, a friend of mine, Jimmy Hatch wrote a great book called touching the dragon. And Jimmy was a tear and seal operated at the highest level, um, was shot pretty severely and, had been in some very fierce firefights mm -hmm. and had bottled up all that stress and all that trauma and tucked it away into a box in the back of his mind, which many people do that go through trauma that go through major life ambushes. The problem when you do that, Jimmy describes it like a dragon, that trauma, that incident that you've been through, it is like a dragon. And what, and you know, you can't put a dragon in a box. You know, you can chain it up all you want, but that dragon's going to break out and eat you, especially if something triggers it to do so. Right. And, and so many guys and gals I watch do this, they think that they can box this dragon up. And the reality is that dragon owns them. And you have to learn what Jimmy talks about is you've got to learn to touch that dragon. And you learn to touch that dragon by talking about it, by, by, by coming to grips with it, by dealing with it and by owning it so it doesn't own you. And what I talked to so many of the wounded warriors and people that have been through trauma, man, you don't realize the power that you have because I don't care who you are, um, someone has been through a similar situation than, than, than you have or that you have. And they could benefit from hearing your story. They wanna hear your story because they don't know how to get it through, how to get through that off the X themselves. They're trying to figure it out. But if you're already off the X, even though maybe you're not you know, talking about it yet, but mm -hmm. if you started to, if you figured out a way to the other side, there's power in that for other people. And uh, I really encourage the wounded warriors that we went through to tell their story. And it was hard. Um, many of them really struggled. They had never told their story before. And, and some of them um, have long, you know, have gotten off the X. Um, some of them have not, I will say. I, and, and that's something I've come to find that um, no one can drag you off the X. You know, if, if you're not ready to get off the X, people can drag you off and you'll just climb right back on it. Um, so some people will just get off it. And then there are some that once they figure it out, holy smokes, I have power over this trauma that occurred to me and I own it, they launch from it. And these are the individuals that are out there. They're telling their story. They're starting nonprofits. They're doing things to just make a difference, to take this tragic event that occurred in their life, kind of like I did. I mean, I speak on my failures. I have people all the time, you know, that say, why would you talk about your failures? And I, I'm like, because everybody fails because there's so many people out there that are struggling that have had some level of failure or some incident that they're ashamed of. 
and they're afraid to talk about it and maybe they're stuck in life and then they meet me and they're like, you know, and I tell people all the time, it's never too late. I don't care what happened to you. It's never too late to get off that X. And then they hear my story and they're like, wow, like, you're right. Like, I want to go live my life again because I just stopped living. They laid down on the X and stopped living. You know, you said something there. And, I, and by the way, you've been so generous with your time. I've got, I've got two more um Two more questions for you. Um, you just mentioned talking about your failures and you're, you're unabashed about them. Um, and yet in doing so, you, you pull people in. It's kind of what I was saying earlier on, because, you're, because you allow people to see you be vulnerable, someone who's been, you know, someone who's accomplished what you've accomplished yet can still talk about all these failures, then certainly I can. Um, you know, uh, but you talk about something called failing forward. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you describe what that means? Cause you know, I, I, have heard the term before and I'm sure some of our audience has heard it as well, but you know, I think you really, um, you really kind of encapsulated what it means to fail forward. Yeah. I mean, the idea is we're all going to fail at some point you're going to fail. You know, it may be a small failure. It may be a big failure. Um, you know, none of us like to fail. I mean, I've failed multiple times and I still hate it. I hate to fail. I don't like doing it. Um, but I recognize that it's going to happen. And if, if I maintain that momentum, it's no different. You know, failure is just another X. Um, and, and the idea is that we, we fail. And instead of just dropping down onto the X and feeling sorry for ourselves because we fail, instead, it's, it's almost your you're failing forward. You're using it as momentum to just get back up immediately and start driving forward again. And you may realize that, wow, that was not the right path. Uh, I may need to change course here, or it's I'm getting up and it is still the right path. I just need to redo what I was doing and now drive forward and fix it. Um, but it's being, it's being a hundred percent, um, it's being 100% realistic with yourself. It's mm -hmm. understanding your strengths, it's understanding your weaknesses, and then constantly making those adjustments off them. So if you have this idea of not being afraid to fail, of, uh, you know, you may not like it, I don't like it, but knowing that if it happens, you know, same principles apply, use that react methodology, you know, fail forward, get up and go, you know, and uh, don't sit there and feel sorry for yourself, you know, and and ignore the haters. You know, there's plenty of negative people that want to, I don't, it's, we're such a, humans are such a flawed species, um, mm. you know, cause we, we love to watch people fail. Uh, and it, it fascinates me um, that we, there are literally so many people revel in someone's failure. Yes. Um, but then interesting, we're all so incredibly motivated by people who fail and get up and redeem themselves. Um, so yeah, man, we could just build an entire world of people that just fail and get up and redeem themselves. I mean, everybody would be motivated all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, but all it is, is just, you just, you know, it is that overcome mindset. It is, I'm not going to accept this as the end. I'm, you know, failure is just a new beginning. You know, so you've, you've managed to, you know, create this incredible process to help people get out of those ambushes um, before it turns into quicksand. And even when it turns into quicksand, you know, you, you've shown that there's still like a rope that you can grab onto and pull yourself out. So you've got a, a great process. 
And uh, the book is, is brilliant, by the way, because it's not just your advice. You literally, every, these, every one of these lessons that you're talking about in the book, you then give a story about having been in the situation and, and gone through it. And, and you also bring in Jocko, um, you know, what Jocko uh, has done in certain situations. You've interviewed Jocko. Uh, and I think it was Admiral um, McRaven. Uh, McRaven. Yes. Make your bed. His book, make your bed. And, and he, you know, he's, you talk about some of his advice in there. I, I love the interview with Stan McChrystal. I mean, I, Stan McChrystal was such a phenomenal leader. I worked under him uh, when I was active duty. And for those that don't remember that name, Stan McChrystal was the head of all forces right. in Afghanistan, a legendary special operations warrior, four-star general and got Rolling Stone. Yeah. That, that, terrible article that came out in Rolling Stone where some of his staff had made some negative disparaging comments about the Obama administration. And he was forced to resign. I mean, here was a guy who probably would have been in the next head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yep. And like that, his career was over. And he was so gracious uh, talking about that failure and, and how it was hard. It was very hard for him in dealing with that, but how he got off that X and drove forward. And I just thought that was an amazing story. Um, of resiliency when I know so many other people out there who would not have, you know, they would have just crawled right. away and died. And he's created this amazing company, you know, the, the crystal uh, group. Yeah. The McChrystal group yeah. teaching leadership at the highest levels. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. And so it's, you know, you've got all these stories, but the, the, the thing I wanted to finish with is that you didn't just rely on the process to get yourself off the X because that allows you to survive, to overcome. So you've overcome, but you have also become a peak performer because, and you talk about in the book, how like you almost had to stop juggling so many plates. Like when you got off the X, you had so much momentum that like you were literally just like, you were starting up businesses, starting up charities, you know, you were getting involved in oh, just uh, documentaries that, you know, and that, you know, just so many different things that you were doing. And, uh, you know, you had to slow down and, you know, one of the things you talk about is peak performance in the book. So once you're off the X, you know, how, you then you also talk about, you know, the Pentagon, right? Of, I think it's called the Pentagon of peak performance, I believe. Yeah, Absolutely. So you don't have, I know it's a, you know, it, it takes some describing, but if you could talk about the, just the pillars, like an overview, because this is what people also then need to realize, because once you're off the X, there's something else that you have to cultivate going forward to build that momentum and help because you said survive and thrive. And that the Pentagon, the Pentagon of peak performance, that's the thriving part. So it, if you could is. just touch it's on also, that. Close. It's also the preparation part. Um, okay. SEALs are not effective at getting out of ambushes because we talk about it. We're effective at getting out of ambushes because we train relentlessly for it. And it's not just, we don't just work out a lot. We build an amazing mental mindset. We build an amazing tactical mindset. We build an amazing team mindset. We build an amazing resiliency mindset. We build an amazing immediate action uh, capabilities. All those things together enable us to survive some of these crazy situations. It's what enabled my team to survive that night. And, and I tell people they need to do that in their own life. 
it's interesting, um, Lawrence, because I'm actually getting ready to launch a new program in 2021 called Point Man for Life. Because, okay. you know, 20, one of the, and, and I'm coming back to your question because the Pentagon of Peak Performance is a part of this program. What it is, and this is where, what a great example of adversity. Uh, 2020 was a year of adversity. Here I was, I was going to have the most successful year of my, my life. Um, I had almost doubled the number of speaking engagements from 2019 to 2020. We were booming. And come March, it all came to a grinding halt. Every engagement from the mid-March forward was canceled. Right. Uh, so suddenly I found myself with all this time twiddling my thumbs, trying to figure out what do I do? You know, I'm not bringing in any income. Um, and, and thankfully, you know, thank you to the American tax dollars who pay my military retirement pay. Uh, <laughs> and thankful, and thankfully, my wife and I were smart enough to not live outside our means. Mm. Uh, so, but what it did is it gave me time to think about things. Okay. And I started developing this program called this Point Man for Life program that if the best leader, some of our most amazing leaders are point men, they get us to where we need to go. And there are four principles to be an amazing point man. Okay. Number one is relentless belief in your mission. Number two is a clearly defined destination and course. Number three is research and understanding of the risks and, and, and a finely attuned awareness of the indicators of potential ambushes. And number three is an overcome mindset to get off the X as quickly as possible. So this point man for life program builds all these things. One, everyone should have a mission statement in their life. You should know who you are, where you want to go. You know, what are your values? What drives you? And that mission, that should be your lighthouse for everything you do in life. Because when you get in an ambush, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like, oh my God, where do I go? Who am I again? It's like, oh yeah, that's my mission. That's who I am. That's where I'm going. And the destination are your long-term goals. The course is your short-term goals. And then your preparation comes down to our ability to lead ourselves. That's the Pentagon of peak performance. How do, we, how do we set these five key areas? And within those five key areas of physical leadership, how we take care of ourselves, right. mental leadership, how do we challenge our beliefs? You know, you obviously with what you do, you have strong mental leadership. You read one book a week. You know, I talk about reading and uh, overcome how critical that is. Um, emotional leadership, how we build our... Um, a little bit of stoicism, if you will, but in also the ability to choose positivity in the face of negativity, the ability to control this round thing in the bottom of our face, um, social leadership, how we build the rings of influence around us, and then spiritual leadership, whether that's uh, faith and religion, something that plays for me, or it's just perspective and getting outside of yourself. All these things make up your ability to be incredibly successful and to operate at the highest levels. And uh, I'm really excited about the program. So I'll be launching that. I'm launching a planner uh, early in 2021 called the Point Man Planner. And it explains okay. how we do all these things. Well, that sounds exciting. Uh, I can't wait till that comes out. So, so, it'll, so it'll start with that. And then are you going to take it from there? Is it, you, are you going to be doing uh, seminars on it? Are you going to have a, a, you know, a program with, with courses or, or that kind of thing? Absolutely. Everything's built around it. So I'll be doing keynotes about it. I'll be, uh, I'll be launching an online course. So uh, I'm actually going to couple the planner together with a three-month online course. So every week, Brilliant. we'll be building upon these things. 
Uh, I'm going to be doing workshops. Uh, I'm going to be doing a, a three-month group coaching program. And then I'm even going to be opening up to one-on-one -on -one coaching within this program. Excellent. Excellent. That, that is, I mean, that sounds exciting. Well, there, there you go. So you've turned this, you know, you, as you, as you said, it's, it was time to flex. It wasn't time to, you know, shut down. It's time to flex. So it sounds like you're flexing and uh, you know, it just sounds like um, there's so much, you, you radiate positivity. You certainly practice what you preach in spades. And I want to close out uh, with a quote uh, from the book that I think is apropos. It says, you say, you say, change happens. Some of it will be good. Some will be bad. Some will be incredibly painful. If you maintain the status quo, those external influences, the enemy will create changes without you. And often they will be negative changes. Instead, go back to your values, go back to what you stand for. Go back to the life mission that will get you up in the morning. Keep your head up, look for the worst case scenarios and evaluate constantly. Keep getting better, pressing into discomfort, finding those margins of peak performance, building your Pentagon of peak performance and keeping it strong. This is the only way to overcome. If you don't overcome every day, the world will overcome you. And then it's only a matter of time before a life ambush takes you down. If you don't overcome every day, the world will overcome you. Uh, you know, what a, you know, what a, what a profound statement. And I think that says it all. I think that says it all, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. For being on the show. Um, it, it's been amazing. Where can our audience find you? Where can they learn more? You know, you know, everyone's going to be interested in getting, you know, getting involved in the point man program. What do they do? Yeah. Go to uh, jasonredman.com. That's my website. Everything uh, starts there. Uh, you can find all my socials, scroll down to the bottom of my, my page. I'm on all the socials. I have my YouTube channel. Every Monday I put out a uh, positive message called Monday muster. And it's all about just positivity about starting the week on the right note. Um, from there, you know, you can go into my store. I have my books. You can get um, a signed copy of the sign on the door, a poster if you'd like it. We have those in there. And um, I have my own podcast, Moving the Needle with Jason Redman. And mm -hmm. uh, I interview individuals who have amazing stories of leadership and overcoming adversity. Um, this week, I, I had a, or my most recent one, I interviewed um, um, uh, Big Kenny the one of the lead singers from the country rock band big and rich he's okay. got an incredible story it was just it's actually one of the favorite episodes i've done so just a really it. cool cool guy and a great thing so yeah that's what i'm doing if you follow my socials uh i'm only about positivity you know i'm not about politics i'm not i mean i i, I have my own beliefs but i don't put that out there okay. i'm about nothing but trying to help you become the best version of yourself Phenomenal. Um, we, we need as much of that as we can get uh, in these times because there's a lot of prognosticators of doom out there. Uh, so to have, you know, to have a few uh, prognosticators of positivity uh, with the with the chops to back it up and with the, the protocols to make it a reality is, uh, you know, is empowering. So thank you so much, Jason. Again, thank you for your service. 
and uh, it's it's been an amazing conversation. Yeah, Lawrence, my honor, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. All right, you take care.